Welcome to this special 3CD edition of Breast Cancer Update, an audio review journal for surgeons. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. Later on in this program, you'll hear edited highlights of a panel discussion on interdisciplinary management of early breast cancer held at the 8th Annual Meeting of the American Society of Breast Surgeons on May 12, 2007 in Phoenix. Prior to this fascinating conference, I interviewed each faculty member separately, and to begin, I chatted with Dr. Mel Silverstein about a variety of topics relevant in the management of early breast cancer, but to begin, I asked Dr. Silverstein to talk about the origin of his lifelong interest in and commitment to maximizing the cosmetic outcome of breast cancer surgery. I was the chief resident at the Boston City Hospital in the first surgical service, And at that time, I had a girlfriend who later became my wife. She was a medical student who was going to become a psychiatrist. And being a young macho surgeon, I wanted to impress her. So I took her around ward rounds and I showed her a French woman who was about 40 years old who I had done a radical mastectomy on. And she was a thin, beautiful woman. And this was a long vertical scar that came up on her shoulder. And, you know, it was a really deforming operation. You don't see it today, but this was 1968. And so I proudly undraped her and showed it to this young woman. And I was really enthusiastic about how technically beautiful it was. And when I did it, the patient started to cry. The young woman psychiatrist dragged me out in the hall and told me what a big dumb surgeon I was following the pack and that I had no feeling for the patient. It was simply the technical exercise. And of course, I got furious at her. But the truth is, it really affected my life and it changed my whole approach. That was 1968. And so 1979, which is 11 years later, I opened the first freestanding breast center in the United States with a full-time psychiatrist there. So clearly, I learned something from that experience. So let's fast forward to the present day in terms of where we are, in terms of minimizing the local problems that surgery causes. What are some of the things that have happened in the last year or two that you think are most exciting? Well, we think we've really minimized the treatment from radical mastectomy. But let's think about it for a second. In the 1890s, we had a radical mastectomy, which was a very aggressive treatment. When radiation therapy came on board, we added radical radiotherapy to that. And then it took till 1975 till we switched over to modified radical. And then maybe another 10 years, 1985, we switched to breast preservation with lumpectomy and radiotherapy. And all of that seems to be a moderation of our aggressiveness. But the basic principle of treating the whole breast stayed intact. So we treated the whole breast in 1895, and we treat the whole breast in 2007, So, yes, it's kinder and gentler, but it's still the whole breast. And what's really emerging in the last few years is the fact that most of your local failures are at or near the primary. And so the thought of treating just the area of the primary is very appealing. And there's multiple ways now to do radiation therapy to just the primary area which I would say are kinder and gentler than whole breast radiation therapy. There's catheters followed with high-dose insertions of radiotherapy, you know, for the next four or five days. There's a balloon brachytherapy. There's conformal radiation therapy. And then there's intraoperative radiation therapy. Now, the first three all take a number of days. 
The balloon, for example, is the hot therapy in the United States right now. 25,000 balloon radiotherapies have been done. Problem is the balloon's in there for a minimum of five days and most likely seven or eight days. It's a two-way street. There's a 10 to 15% infection rate. And when you pull out the balloon, you got a big hole that fills with fluid. And I think the final chapter about long-term cosmetic results has yet to be written on that. I myself don't like to leave a big hole filled with fluid. And I think that long-term, those results might be a problem. So what's really appealing to me is intraoperative radiation therapy. We participate at USC in the TARGET trial out of London, Mike Baum's trial. And we've participated in many randomized trials, but this one is the absolute easiest one to sell because you talk to the patient, you know, while I'm there doing your lumpectomy, if you're randomized to the correct arm, you can have the radiation therapy. It's an additional 30 or 40 minutes in the operating room and you're done. And if you don't get that, then you're going to get the standard radiation therapy, which is six to seven weeks. Well, it's a no-brainer. Everybody who hears that says, well, is there any way that I can just get it and not be randomized? At this point in time, the answer is no, we're not doing that. But Professor Veronese in Milan has given intraoperative radiotherapy to more than 2,000 patients now. He's got over 1,200 randomized with four years of follow-up, and they have a minuscule local recurrence rate. Now, this target study, the randomization is against what conventional external beam radiation therapy? Yes, it's conventional whole breast radiation versus intraoperative radiation. And how many patients have you actually treated on that study and had them randomized to the intraoperative treatment? Well, we've randomized 50 patients now. 25 or 24 to intraoperative radiotherapy. And overall, I believe worldwide, there's about 10 or 15 centers doing it, and there's around 800 patients randomized now. Can you talk about the device itself, where exactly it you know comes from and the procedure? Right. The device is called the IntraBeam, and it's manufactured by Zeiss, or they're the company that sells it. And it's a photon radiotherapy system. So it's not electrons. It's a low-dose radiation therapy, the physicists claim that because you give this low dose over, say, a 30 to sometimes 40-minute period in the operating room, that it's the equivalent of, for example, what Professor Veronese gives, which is electrons, 21 gray, in two minutes. Because this is given in 30 or 40 minutes, they say it's biologically equivalent. Now, I think it remains to be proven whether this is true, But the reports I've heard are that so far, there are very, very few local recurrences. But in the local recurrence business, we have to be patient because they don't happen overnight. And there are not that many of them. Yeah, right. So what exactly do you do when you do the procedure? So what we do is we plan out a standard lumpectomy, whatever that's going to be. Some people do big, wide excisions the way we do. We do a lot of oncoplastic surgery. Others do smaller excisions. Once the tumor's out, we do specimen radiography in two views to make sure that the margins look clear, because the one thing we don't want to discover is two or three days later, we've irradiated and the margins are positive, but we can come back to that in a minute. So we do the best we can to get widely clear margins intraoperatively and feel secure about that. Then what we do is a very interesting thing. We undermine the breast off the chest wall, and we put in a protective device. It's a tungsten-impregnated silicone, which protects the chest wall, so that there is no radiation to the muscle and no radiation to the underlying lung or heart. That's completely eliminated with this technique. 
Then the second thing we do is we undermine the skin so we can place sutures and retract the skin. And that solves a big problem that we have with the balloon radiotherapy. With the balloon radiotherapy, with the balloon in, there's got to be a minimum of five and probably more likely seven millimeters of good tissue or you're going to injure the skin. Right. Okay, we don't have that problem because we retract the skin and we protect the chest wall. And then what we do is we suture together the bottom of the breast, bring an adapter, which is a round ball, into the hole, and then suture the remaining breast tissue around the round ball. So all the breast tissue comes in around this round ball, just like balloon radiotherapy. Then we use an ultrasound to make sure that there are no air gaps and so on and so forth. And then we connect it up to the machine, turn it on for a prescribed amount of time. There's a radiation physicist in the operating room. You can then step out and, you know, call your wife or your kids. and Put it in the microwave, in other words. And we just turn it on, walk out of the room, and the anesthesiologist stays there. The amount of x-ray is low and it's soft, doesn't travel very far. And how much does this add to the operative time? I would say overall it adds about an hour. That's the undermining, suturing, the actual 25 to 40 minutes of treatment, then taking all that stuff out. How about post-operative recovery? Pretty much the same? or It's like we didn't do it. Really? Hmm. We've seen one red breast for about five days after this treatment and no other complications whatsoever. Hmm. Interesting. So it's incredibly appealing. And then the patient's done with her local treatment. So she goes to chemotherapy without wrestling with, oh, should I do chemo first? Should I do radiation therapy first? I mean, she goes to chemotherapy and deals with that. And Mike Bowne's always been such a creative person. What's the entry criteria for the study? And for practical purposes, what kind of patients do you subselect at even more in terms of who you put on this trial? That's a very good question. As I said earlier, we don't want to end up a few days later with positive margins. So, and each site has a chance to make their own criteria. So the criteria that we have at USC are three-centimeter tumors or smaller. That's pretty big. Pretty big. No infiltrating lobular, no pure DCIS, and we try, we don't really accept patients if on a needle biopsy it looks like there's a lot of DCIS. Why the concern about DCIS? Well, because that may tend to extend beyond the margins. Mm. It just makes it a little more difficult. We are actually putting together an intraoperative trial for DCIS. It won't be randomized. It'll be a feasibility trial to see whether we can select patients that we can excise, do the interoperative radiotherapy, and end up with clear margins. With this device? With this device. Hmm. Because, you know, people with a balloon are treating DCIS patients now off protocol. All over the United States, patients can walk in and get the balloon for either invasive cancer or DCIS if they want to. I think the thinking that I've heard a lot in general about that has been, you know, people are looking for situations where they're less concerned if it does turn out to be less effective. So, you know, they take patients that maybe they're not even sure they think they even want to give radiation to and maybe put them in a study like that. Does that make sense to you? Oh, sure. I mean, if you were to select a group of patients who can't recur, then you can have 100% success with this technique. But our criteria are three centimeters or smaller, It should be an infiltrating ductal cancer. It should be unifocal on mammography. We do whole breast ultrasound to look for anything else, and every patient gets a preoperative MRI. And we have to satisfy ourselves that we don't see anything. Anything we see on MRI gets biopsied. If we find another focus of anything, they can't be in the trial. 
Now, what about PBI and people who aren't going in this study? What kinds of techniques are you using, and how do you pick your patients? Right. For those, we can do any of the other things. Our group at USC can do catheters. They can do conformal 3D radiation therapy. The truth is I don't particularly like any of them. I really am enthralled with intraoperative radiation therapy because I'm looking for the real convenience for the patients. Plus, I like to finish this radiotherapy so I can then close the wound in an oncoplastic fashion. What about conformal? What's the problem there? Conformal's good, but you know you can't be 100% certain that you get the exact same target every single day. But conformal's very good. And on the B39 trial, I believe conformal was the highest utilized form of partial breast radiation therapy. Are you putting patients on that study too? We're not, no. Right, yeah, you're saying, oh, it seems like these patients are going on that one. That's a fascinating study. I think I saw a paper that you put out recently on the issue of PBI. I think it was mamocyte and DCIS, right? Yes. Can uh, you talk about that? Well, that was just a feasibility trial. Oscar Streeter was the PI at USC, and it was an attempt to see whether or not we could do mamocyte, balloon, brachytherapy on DCIS patients. And the answer is you can do it if you're careful and you select the patients and you pay attention to the margins. The truth is... With the mammocyte, it's turned out that the probably better way to do it is to simply put it in postoperatively, use ultrasound and put it in postoperatively. That requires that you leave a seroma cavity, something that the group that I run at USC tries not to do. We try to close the whole breast in layers. As I said, doing oncoplastic surgery, which I think is also one of the hottest new fields in the breast surgery business. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I do. We actually started doing oncoplastic surgery in 1985. We didn't call it that. We didn't have a name for it. But in the Van Nuys Breast Center, there were two plastic surgeons. And in the beginning, we were relatively shorthanded. So it wasn't uncommon for one of the plastic surgeons to help me do a mastectomy, and I would help him do a reconstruction, or they might help me do an axillary dissection, or I might help them do a reduction. And one day, one of the plastic surgeons made a strange reduction drawing. I said, what is that? He said, that's a bat wing reduction. I said, why do you call it a bat wing? He says, because it looks like the bat symbol from Batman. It was kind of taking a bat-shaped piece of tissue out from the upper hemisphere. And the result was that you lifted the lower part of the breast up into this vacated space. And you got a breast about half the size. And I said, my God, I said, I could take cancer out with that in the right patient. So it it dawned upon me that if I could find the right patient with a tumor, say, in the 11, 12, or 1 o'clock position above the nipple, with a large breast that could benefit from reduction, I could do this. So maybe a few weeks later, I found exactly the right patient. And we mapped out this big bat wing reduction bilaterally. We took two enormous pieces of tissue out on each side, 500 grams on each side, got a beautiful result. And there was a tumor dead set in the middle of this thing. And that was the first oncoplastic thing. We didn't call it oncoplastic. We didn't have a name for it. And we just started to use plastic surgical procedures. Then we used reductions to take tumors out of the bottom half of the breast. And then we started doing mastectomies through reduction incisions so that we would then reconstruct them and the patient would look like she had a reduction, not a mastectomy, not a big transverse incision. And a whole range of incisions, 
Now we have 10 or 12 different oncoplastic lumpectomy types of approaches, and they're pretty exciting. We actually have modeled our breast fellowship on being an oncoplastic fellowship. How widely used are these techniques? I think it's become one of the hottest topics there is. We have a yearly course at the American Society of Breast Surgeons. The day that it goes online, it sells out. 200 people sign up for it, and the course is filled. But for practical purposes, what fraction of women with breast cancer have this available to them? Or what fraction of docs operating on breast cancer patients do this? I'd say it's a relatively small number now, because remember... Almost all the breast surgery in America is done by general surgeons who don't particularly specialize in breast surgery. They have to do cholecystectomies and lots of other things, and they may not even necessarily come to some of these meetings. But all I can tell you is that when I go to the major breast meetings and show some of these procedures, the next year I see some of the people will come up to me and say, my God, I tried the bat wing, or I tried the hemi bat wing, or I did the crescent mastopexy resection. They tell me that they did it, and some even will send me cases where they're befores and afters. So I think this is very popular, and to tell you how popular it is, we had 27 applications for our fellowship this year, and we interviewed about 18 or 19 people, and we got our top two choices. And when we talk to all of these young people and say, why did you rank us? 15 or 16 ranked us first or second. We asked them, why did you rank us so high? And they said, we like the oncoplastic approach. Interesting. So I think they want to learn that. Of course, you know, we teach them ultrasound. We teach them all the things they need to learn. But the oncoplastic surgery is the one thing they really can't get in any other program. Hmm. Interesting. In terms of decreasing morbidity or minimally invasive, what are your thoughts about cryosurgery? Well, I think the delivery of any kind of energy that will kill the tumor is pretty exciting. Cryo freezes it. Other types of energy heat the surrounding tissue, and both of them will kill the tissue. And for all I know, if we're going to be local therapists, in other words, treating just segments of the breast— I'm not sure that we have to do it with radiation therapy. There's not any reason why we couldn't do a lumpectomy and then follow that with cryotherapy to the margins or radiofrequency therapy to the margins. Has that been done? Well, Suzanne Klimberg in Arkansas is doing a study with radiofrequency to the margins, hmm. and that's pretty exciting. I mean, if that works... As well as radiation therapy, it's going to be much easier and much cheaper. Well, when you just take bigger margins. If you're doing just partial breast radiotherapy, you could eliminate all of that with bigger margins. There's a point where the biggest margins you can get are a mastectomy, and then you've lost the situation. So you've got to find out how big a piece can you take and still end up with a breast that looks as good or better than you started with. That's our goal with oncoplastic surgery. Take the biggest possible piece but get the best margins. We want it all, so to speak. I guess, I don't know, just intuitively, when I think about cryo, I think about the tissue just getting destroyed, or somehow radiation therapy, that there's still the tissue you're radiating with, let's say, a mammocyte or whatever is still there. But maybe that's not true. Does that get destroyed too? Well, I think with radiotherapy, they tell us that the cancer cells are more susceptible, and therefore we give radiotherapy, and the good cells are supposed to live through it, and the bad cells are supposed to die. Certainly that doesn't happen all the time because we have radiation therapy failures. We know it doesn't work all the time. And we radiate the entire breast. It doesn't kill the breast, doesn't fall off, doesn't become necrotic. So pretty much it lives through it. 
The problem is, I think with radiotherapy is that some cancer cells make it through, and that's why we get recurrences and local failures. And I don't know enough about the delivery of other forms of energy to know whether this is going to be a good thing. But I think it's a really fertile place to do research because if you could prove that cryo or heat therapy does as good a job as radiotherapy, let's say for one and a half centimeters around the cavity, it's going to be much cheaper. We're looking at an electron machine called the Mobitron. It's $1.8 million to bring it in. Okay, and it's a great, big, enormous hulk of a machine. If we could do it with a smaller, different type of energy that didn't require radiation therapy people, and it would be a lot easier. How much is the target machine? Target machine is between three and $400,000. That's what I remember. It's not that much. It's not that much, but it's still a fair amount of money. Plus, every time we do it, we need a radiation oncologist mm, and a right. radiation physicist. Right. And so the more we do, the more we overwhelm their time. Right. And so if we had another way of doing this, it's very appealing. What's new in terms of the whole arena of margins? Any research databases that have come out in the last year or so? Anything new to help sort of guide that continuing debate? Well, I was just at an NCI conference up in San Francisco in February of 2007 on DCIS. And they had a lot of scientists there and epidemiologists there. And they were trying to plot how to go forward. And a lot of the interest was in looking at what appears to be normal tissue around the edges of a DCIS that already has molecular genetic changes that destine it to become another DCIS or the same DCIS and then ultimately invasive cancer. And so I think that's going to become a real thing, looking at the surrounding tissue. It's going to be years from now before we figure that out. But right now, the best we've got with margins is to do thorough and complete sequential pathology, inking and color coding the margins, and just the hard work of a pathologist who's got to look at all those slides and tell us that the margins are good. Anything new in those debates? You're always in the pro and con and you know controversies, et cetera, about that whole issue. What are you hearing nowadays? Well, the debate that's still out there is, does every patient with DCS need radiation therapy? And I'm on the no side. That doesn't mean I don't give radiation therapy. I do for some patients. But the hooker in the question is, does every patient need it? If you listen to the proponents of it, the NSABP, the radiation therapists from the East Coast, I won't name the schools, they feel that everybody needs radiation therapy. Now, clearly, American doctors and American patients don't really buy into that because 2003 SEER data suggests that about 35% of DCIS patients in this country do not get radiation therapy. What fraction of your patients with DCIS don't get radiation? Oh, probably double that. We try very hard not to give radiation therapy. But, you know, some do. At the American Society of Breast Surgeons meeting, one of my fellows will be updating our 1999 New England Journal DCIS paper. In that paper, we looked at a group of patients with 10-millimeter margins And they had extremely low local recurrence rate with or without radiation therapy. It was, you know, in the range of 2 or 3%. But the problem with that group of patients, they only were followed for a median of 47 months, which is not, you know, about four years. Now, those patients have all been followed for a median of 123 months, which is 10 years. The recurrence rates are only slightly higher for the excision-only patients 
It's in the range of 7%, and for the radiotherapy patients, in the range of about 2.5%. Okay, if you compare that with the gold standard, which is set by the NSABP, at 12 years, they've got a 16% recurrence rate for all their patients with DCIS and excision plus radiotherapy, right? And so we are, in spite of... Of course, that's an indirect comparison. Yeah, it's an indirect. It's not a fair comparison. But for our excision-only 10-millimeter margins, we're looking at only about a 7, 7.5% recurrence rate. So let's say with radiotherapy, it's 2.5. So that's about 5% benefit, absolute benefit from the radiotherapy. So our data shows exactly the same thing that the randomized trial data shows. shows that if you give radiotherapy, you decrease the relative recurrence risk by about 50 or 60%. In the 10-millimeter margins patients, that translates only to an absolute benefit of about 5% at most. All right, that means I have to radiate 100 patients to prevent five recurrences, of which only two will be invasive. And when I get an invasive recurrence, I can cure at least 8 out of 10 because we follow them closely, which means it's going to take, I'm going to probably have to irradiate three or 400 patients to prevent one death. You published recently on that issue of the prognosis of invasive local recurrence after DCIS. Can you talk a little bit about the specific numbers you saw and how that compares to other databases? Yes. Let me start with one interesting finding that we haven't published that is really fascinating. We looked at all of our recurrences in excision-only patients. It turns out 34% of them, or about a third, were invasive. We looked at all of our recurrences in excision plus radiation therapy. 53% were invasive. About a 20% difference there, statistically significant. Now, why is that happening? I think it's happening because some radiation therapy patients get fibrosis, they get scarring. Not everybody gets a perfect result. When that happens, their mammographic follow-up is much more difficult. People think it's just scarring, they follow them for a while, and finally, when the biopsy's done, it's actually a big invasive cancer. So, yes, we can prevent recurrences with radiotherapy. But if we get a recurrence, it has a higher probability of being invasive, and that kind of evens the whole thing out for us. What about the prognosis of these invasive recurrences? So now we've looked at the long-term prognosis of uh, about 80 invasive recurrences out of this group of patients. And what we found was that at 12 years, about 20% of them had metastatic disease, and about 15% of them had died. So let's assume all those with metastatic disease will die. So that's about one in five is going to die with invasive recurrence. And I think that's the trade-off that you have to think about when you decide, are you going to give radiation therapy? When I present our data, if you think radiotherapy is a good idea, you're going to say our data supports giving radiotherapy. And if you think it's a bad idea, you'll think our data doesn't support it. But I think it really boils down to how much risk a patient wants to take. And we already know in medical oncology that there have been surveys where women said, you know, for a 1% survival benefit, I'll be happy to take the chemotherapy. If you feel that way, very likely you're going to use our data to justify radiation therapy because we can reduce the recurrence rate with 10-millimeter patients right now from 7 or 8% down to 2 or 3%. That's a 5% absolute benefit of any recurrence. Only two of those recurrences are invasive. So if you treat 250 patients with 10-millimeter margins, you will probably save one life. 
But what does it cost you in terms of radiation? You know, not everybody's a great radiotherapist. Is everybody going to use CT planning? Is everyone going to protect the heart and lungs? Is there going to be more lung cancer, more esophageal cancer, more pulmonary disease? Are some people going to get heart disease from the radiotherapy? You know, I think they're much better today than they were in 1980. So I think there's a good chance of preventing much of that, but you can't prevent it all. If the patient were to say to you, is there any advantage, even if it's a 0.01% advantage in having a mastectomy in that situation? Well, there is. There's clearly an advantage in mastectomy, but at what price? We have now in our series 444 mastectomies, five local recurrences, and one patient has died. A mastectomy clearly has an advantage because you don't get recurrences. The recurrence rate is around 1%. Even in the best of hands, if you do lumpectomy and radiation therapy, look at the NSAP. They're 16% at 12 years. The EURTC is 15% at 10 years, so they'll be in the same ballpark. And half those patients have invasive recurrences, and some of those people are going to die. It's probably not going to happen if you do a mastectomy. But the price is too stiff to pay for most patients. But are patients really informed about that? I certainly inform them, and they slough it right off. They don't even think it's worth it. Hmm. It's barely worth considering for most patients. The people with DCIS who get a mastectomy are usually the people who are forced to. They have large DCIS. You can't get it out with clear margins and a reasonable cosmetic result. They tend to get a mastectomy, or the patients who are genetically positive. I think they often, when you get the combination of being genetically positive, plus you've already got a cancer, even if it's DCIS and it's not much of a cancer— that's enough to say, you know what, I fiddled with this and taken my chances. I'm going to get out now while I can. And they opt for the mastectomy, two mastectomies, in fact. What about the issue of margins and also the question of are there patients who can be spared radiation therapy with invasive breast cancer? Clearly, we'd love to do that. And remember, we're doing all these brachytherapy trials. All brachytherapy really is is a bigger margin. So one would think if localized radiation therapy works, then if you had the right breast, the right size tumor, and a big enough margin, it ought to work equally as well. And here's the truth. It does. Let's think about this. Think about the B06 trial. Okay, there's an arm where patients got excision of the tumor plus radiation therapy, and there's an arm where patients got excision and no radiation therapy. Okay, the people who've got excision and no radiation therapy, 40% of them recurred. That means that in 60% of those patients, the excision worked. They didn't need the radiation therapy. So clearly, there are groups of patients who you could probably get away with. You cannot go back to those data and figure out who they are because they didn't really ink all margins. They didn't measure margins. You cannot go back retrospectively and do that. There was no serial sectioning. So there's no way to really tell who those 60 patients out of 100 were who did not recur. I would bet they had small, favorable tumors and were well-excised, okay? But you can't prove it. And if you add in those characteristics to an older patient, is kind of where you're seeing people look at this. How do you approach those people? And what do you think about the studies that are out there looking at holding off on radiation in those patients? Well, I certainly have a lot of 70 and 80-year-old patients who I've done big, wide excisions on and not given radiation therapy and have not been burned on them. But that's not the standard. Very likely, these patients would be wonderful candidates for IORT, 
you know, interoperative radiotherapy or even intraoperative margin destruction with cryo or RF energy, just to keep them from going through whole breast radiation therapy would be very appealing to me and to them. So perfectly healthy 80-year-old woman with a 0.8 centimeter invasive cancer, ER positive, is going to get an AI and you know, nothing nasty under the microscope, well differentiated, but yet she's a healthy 80-year-old woman. What would you likely recommend? She and I are going to talk about She comes to me, she's got a good chance of not getting radiation therapy, but if she goes to most people, she's probably going to get radiation therapy because people, doctors like to sort of adhere to the standard of care. We think the standard of care is whole breast radiation. Trials have been done where they tried to get away without radiation therapy. Kevin Hughes' trial out of Boston and the trial by Files from Canada. And short term, the local recurrence rates in the older patients were quite low, but recently they've published the longer term, and those rates are climbing up there in the range of 20%. Well, we've gotten really sensitized to the issue, particularly in breast cancer, of competing causes of mortality. I think for Peter Rabden's adjuvant online model that builds this in, and you see the therapies that are extremely effective in terms of prolonging life at age 60 and 70 you bump up the age to 85, obviously 90, and you know, sort of statistically, everything sort of falls off the table. Is there an age at which you routinely, again, 85, 90, what's the age at which you really start just purely based on the numbers to pull back from using radiation in these types of tumors? You know, I don't think I have an automatic age because the truth is an 85-year-old healthy woman has a reasonable chance to be 95 or 100. An 85-year-old woman who has other problems... I'm much more likely to do nothing other than try to get the tumor out in a very simple way. Let's shift over to the other side of the coin in breast cancer, which is the overall management of the disease, the systemic control of the disease. You know, it's funny when you talk about that French patient in 1968, in a way, it kind of reminds me a little bit about surgery for tuberculosis, that we've come so strong into the whole issue of the systemic management and molecular study of breast cancer, and breast cancer is a systemic disease. I'm curious what your thoughts are about some of the newer things that have come along from that perspective. And one I'm curious about your thoughts on is the Oncotype DX assay. And I'm curious what you think about it and how you incorporate it, if at all, into your practice. Well, we incorporate the 21-gene Oncotype DX test. The reason my group, which is surgical, loves it is because its real use is trying to spare some patients from chemotherapy. Absolutely. Without that test, I'm going to guess... 90% of the people with invasive cancer get chemotherapy, and it might even be higher than that. This test has the potential to spare, I don't know how big the group will be, but to certainly spare some of those people. So I'm very strong proponent of any test that will help minimize the treatment, take away treatment from people who are really not likely to benefit from it, since all the things we do have side effects. Now, do you actually order the test yourself, or you have the patient go to the oncologist and they determine well, it? Well, at USC, the oncologists actually work hand-in-hand in the same breast center. And so it's very simple to just pass the patient over and have it ordered. But very often, if we see that it's one of those borderline cases, the nodes are negative, you know, it's an ER positive tumor, and it's 14 millimeters or 11 millimeters, and it might be enough to give her chemo, there might be enough not to, 
we'll probably order it before they even get there so that when they get to the medical oncologist, which is probably a couple of weeks later, we've got as much done for them as possible. How do patients respond when you talk to them about this? They think it's a wonderful idea. They want the information. They don't like the price of it, but they know that pretty much most of it will get covered nowadays. I guess even if you look at it economically, I think there have actually been studies done to show that in a way it's actually cost-effective, not so much for the individual patient or maybe in terms of avoiding the cost of chemotherapy. Yeah, I think if you add up all the people that you can save from undergoing chemotherapy, that would pay for the test. I'm curious about another thing that relates to Oncotype, which is now they have this big trial out there, ECOG Taylor RX trial, trying to look at a specific segment which are the women who have the intermediate scores, where it's not quite so clear. You have the low risk and you have the higher risk, but then the intermediate, which is about a quarter of them, and these women are going to get randomized if they go into the trial to chemo versus no chemo. How do you think that's going to sit with patients and docs? Because that's a randomization we haven't done in breast cancer for a long time. That's a tough call. I think there'll be probably a reasonable number of refusals to participate But how else are we going to get the answer to the intermediate group? Or you could go to this other test, this mammoprint. They don't have an intermediate group. They have a low group and a high group. Now, that is just becoming available in the United States, I believe, right? Do you know anything about it? Yeah, well, it's a group of very good molecular biologists and pathologists from the Netherlands, from I think it's the National Cancer Center in Amsterdam. Really, really good, well-known people who have been publishing for 20 years. And it's a 70-gene test. It's a microarray, so right now you have to get them some fresh tissue. And that's always a problem because with the smaller and smaller image-detected lesions that we're finding nowadays, it's not always so easy to get fresh tissue. They only need about 3 millimeters, a little 3-millimeter punch of it. But it's not always so easy. Oftentimes the pathologists say, you know, this is so small. I'm not quite sure where it begins and ends. I really can't give any of this. So... If they could figure out a way how to do their test on paraffin block, that would be a lot better. And I don't think they're going to come in and supplant Oncotype DX because Oncotype DX has got their foot in the door. They're there. I believe 20,000 tests have already been done. People are using it all over the country when I travel around. And you don't need fresh tissue. And you don't need fresh tissue. That's a critical thing. When something new comes along, to get people to switch, it's got to be better And it certainly can't be harder. Right now, we don't even know if it's better. So we don't know if it's better, and we know it's harder to do. How do you feel about the science behind Oncotype? How do you feel about the research that's been done? I think they're a good group. I think they've really looked at it, and I think most people are pretty comfortable with it. You know, one of the things that's interesting, people always focus on the good risk, low recurrence score patients, which I think is around half of patients that are in this subset where, you know, patients are relieved to find that they won't require chemotherapy. Have you had patients, though, who sort of unexpectedly had high recurrence scores or people who really didn't want chemo, and yet they got a high recurrence score, and that sort of changed their perception of chemo? Not many of them. You know, it's sort of the other way around. Sometimes the people who we think are going to be in the middle, they get a low score. That happens, I think, fairly frequently. But to be shocked and get a very high score. That doesn't happen too well. We've seen it a few times, but not too often. I'm curious about your perspective as a surgeon on other issues in terms of the medical management of breast cancer that have come out in the last couple of years, and particularly the issue of the use of adjuvant trastuzumab and what your thoughts are about that, and again, how you see patients responding to that opportunity now. 
That's a fabulous line of research. And I come from Los Angeles, so I've got Dennis Slayman there, who I've been friends with for 20-some-odd years, and Mike Press is at USC. So here are two leaders in HER2 new business. And so pretty much all of our patients get HER2 by fish. It's just a routine thing at USC. And clearly, I think it leads the biologic attack on cancer. And that's really where we've wanted to be headed for years. We wanted to try to have tumor-specific drugs that really attack the tumor rather than normal tissue. And I think the combination of chemotherapy with Herceptin and HER2-positive patients is really buying enormous amounts of time for patients. They're doing better. We're beginning to render this disease a chronic disease rather than a more acute disease. And I think we're going to get better and better. I was at a lecture recently where Chuck Vogel gave a talk, and he was talking about 200 different compounds that are in active research right now with maybe 2,000 more down the pipe somewhere. So it's an incredible field. It's mind-boggling if you think about it. I want to ask you about another thing that is kind of more subtle that I've seen develop in terms of the perceptions of, again, the medical aspects of breast cancer, which really has just happened in the last few years. And that is the issue of the awareness that particularly or specifically in patients with ER positive tumor, the long natural history and the fact that these patients can recur. We sort of knew that, but yet the magnitude of how many relapses are seen and the effectiveness of using delayed hormonal therapy and the aromatase inhibitors have been looked at in that setting. To me, I see people looking at breast cancer differently since those data came out. What are your thoughts about it? I'm always perplexed by these recurrences at 18 or 20 years. In Van Nuys, we had our secretary who took care of us for years, And 18 years after her mastectomy, having been perfectly healthy, she had lung metastases. And then within a year, she died. ER positive? Yes. Now, how does that happen? I mean, it's just amazing. I guess the practical implication, because we see these cases, again, of women who've been followed, and the surgeons are seeing them, too, for many, many years, and then develop a late recurrence, and then people look back and say, well, could that have been prevented a couple years ago if we used delayed hormonal therapy? Do you think that surgeons should sort of be on the lookout for these types of patients in their practice, particularly the higher-risk people who are now maybe, for example, that five- or ten-year window? Let me rephrase this. For example, let's say I have a patient who had five positive nodes 15 years ago. Comes in, she's doing great. Turns out she had an ER-positive tumor, and we, you know, we haven't treated her for the last 10 years. She's got nothing. She got five years of tamoxifen. Yeah. All right. Should we, right now, go back and say, you know what? You're doing perfectly well. Let's add an AI, you know, or something like that. I can tell you, if it wasn't 10 years since the tamoxifen, if it was maybe two or three, a lot of oncologists would start an AI. How do you sort of approach those patients? Well, I think we're supportive of that. I think that's a reasonable approach, and our oncologists do that. The other thing that's kind of interesting is, again, we do these case presentation things, and people come up with cases and stuff, and it's interesting that you see women who historically missed hormonal therapy at a given point in time. For example, they were diagnosed in 1987 with a node-negative tumor, and it wasn't really until 88 that the data came out supporting therapy, and now 15, 20 years later, they get a recurrence, and they've never had hormonal therapy. Again, you wonder, particularly, again, in the node-positive patient, that patient's out five or 10 years and she's never had hormonal therapy or for whatever reason, you know, do you have an oncologist take a look at the patient or consider delayed hormonal therapy? You know, I think that's done on a case-by-case basis. 
but we don't really have any data to begin, let's say, to start someone on hormones at year 10 or 12 or 14 if they've done well. We have no data. Intuitively, you might say that's a reasonable thing to do for five years, but you can't prove it. Everybody would like to have evidence-based medicine to make these decisions. Well, of course, the other issue, too, is what are the potential downsides? And I'm curious, again, from your perspective, seeing patients as a surgeon, what your thoughts are about the aromatase inhibitors. Clearly, there's been a huge shift towards that as adjuvant therapy for postmenopausal patients. I'm curious what you hear in terms of the patients compared to tamoxifen in terms of side effects, particularly the arthralgias. Yeah, I think the biggest complaint we get are aches and pains in their bones. They really, not all of them, but when they get it, they don't feel good. Everything hurts. And any sort of overall comparison that you see of sort of life on an aromatase inhibitor compared to life on tamoxifen? I would say my general opinion as a surgeon is that I think life on an AI has been better for the patients than life on tamoxifen. Let's talk a little bit about sentinel node. And particularly, I'm curious about your thoughts about the issue of sentinel node and DCIS. That's a great question. If we knew that a lesion was DCIS, we wouldn't do a sentinel node because the truth is, although it doesn't happen terribly frequently, there is some morbidity associated with sentinel node. The reports, there's more morbidity than I would have ever expected. There's more pain, there's more arm swelling. In your hands also? We don't seem to see it very often, but it's anecdotal because I don't know that we've really kept great track of it. It just doesn't happen very frequently. You know, Sometimes when you look at your database, you're just amazed at the and I say, my God, I didn't think this happened very often, but look, we've got 8% recurrence. I thought it was one. I don't think we have very many problems with it. However, reports from Memorial, people who are very reputable talk about a reasonable risk of arm swelling and arm pain and arm problems. So it's not a procedure with zero morbidity as we thought it would be in the beginning. All right, with that as a basis, let's think about DCIS. We have a paper coming out that looks at all of our sentinel node biopsies in DCIS patients. And we've got 200-some-odd, and it turns out that about 6% of them are positive. And they're not positive on H&E. They're positive by IHC, and they have a range of from 4 to 93 cells. What fraction of these were mastectomy? probably the bulk of them. And they had no invasive disease. No invasive disease ever found. We never treated any of them. We never upstaged anybody. I'm not sure why we did the sentinel node. We did it because it was there and we were learning about it at the time. But we didn't treat anybody, upstage anybody, and nobody's recurred. So with that said, I would say this. Since most DCS diagnoses are made with a needle, and we know that approximately 10 to 20% of the time, you're going to upstage that to an invasive cancer, depending on the size of the needle and how many cores you took. It would be reasonable to do a sentinel node biopsy in anybody that's going to have a mastectomy. You're right there. It's simple. There really shouldn't be any additional morbidity to that. You just sneak over there and do it. That certainly is a reasonable group. Now, who else? I don't do it for high-grade lesions. I would do it for a palpable lesion. Let's say I had a palpable lesion. It was DCS. My guess is because it's palpable, I'm probably going to find invasion when we take it out. So I do it for that patient. I would do it if I were doing a wide local excision in the upper outer quadrant. I can reach right over and get a sentinel node. That costs me nothing. So I would do that. However, I would have no qualms with anybody who says, I'm just going to take the 
lump out or the DCIS out. And if it turns out to be invasive, I'll go back and I'll get a sentinel note. I think you can certainly do that at a later stage. But I do it for all mastectomy patients, all DCISs over four centimeters, all palpable DCISs, and any DCIS that's in the upper outer quadrant that allows me easy access without another incision. What about the sentinel node procedure itself? Any pearls or particular ways you handle it might be different than others? I would say that in the beginning, I use just blue dye, and then I use blue dye and radioisotope, and now I generally use only radioisotope. That's because I don't like the blue discoloration that sometimes occurs in the breast, and I don't like the very small risk of allergic reactions to the blue dye. The way I've overcome that is that most people will inject 5 cc's of blue dye. In my patients, I'm usually taking overlying skin. In that skin, I usually make, I take a tuberculin syringe, and I take 1 cc of blue dye, and I'll inject 3 small wheels intradermally, like a tuberculin test, and that takes up about 3 tenths of 1 cc. That's all I inject. And I have no problem whatsoever finding the sentinel node with three-tenths of one cc, and I've never seen an allergic reaction to that teeny amount. It's almost like a test dose.